Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Bum Time podcast presented exclusively on the Chop Sports channel of the Premier Streaming Network. We're recording this on Monday, March 20th. In this episode, we'll cover FA Cup quarterfinals. Those are in and Fulham implode. Holland makes it eight goals in a week and Arsenal open up an eight-point gap in the Premier League. But first, Spurs and Antonio Conte. Yay, 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 I am your host, Laurent Cortines, and we're going to go through all of this in the Squeaky Bum Time podcast. Let's get to it. Please like, subscribe, share. Love the show. We need you. We love you. Everyone is helping. It's been a great week of the show, and we're going to get right to it. Let us start in the FA Cup with Manchester United and Manchester City. Uh, we'll start with more of the same from the great and powerful Erlen Holland. Uh, Vincent Company returning to Manchester, gets a hero's welcome with his new side, Burnley. And hey, they played well for a half an hour, but then the floodgates opened Erling Holland on a half an hour, and the whole thing just went to pot. Second half, City were completely dominant. Holland with a hot trick. He's going nuts. Um, Alvarez with two goals and an assist himself. City wins 6-0 and really lay the smackdown on Burnley to make it to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. On the other side of town on Sunday, Manchester United hang on against Fulham. They're down a goal. Uh, Mitrovic on a really good header. They're down a goal in their game. It's on 71, and then all fucking hell breaks loose. Um, Sorry, they're down a goal. Yeah, they're down a goal for Mitrovic on a nice goal. Everything's fine. Everything's going well. Then Sancho gets loose uh, for a goal. Villian in the near post sort of runs in to try and block the shot from going in. And he kind of chicken wings it. It hits his arm. The ref doesn't call it. It goes to VAR. And um, it's a double jeopardy. Red and ascending off for blocking a goal. And then Mitrovic goes batshit. He picks up a red for bumping the ref. And then uh, Marco Silva gets a red for probably giving the magic word. They spend about, I want to say, four or five minutes sorting out this red card business United up two men. So 11 against nine, they score their penalty on 75 Sabitzer on a really nice finish on a cross from uh, Luke Shaw puts it in. And then Fernandez puts in one on 96. They win three, one setting up a really nice state of games for the semifinal round, because we got an all championship affair, a real 1891 classic Sheffield, defeating Blackburn Rovers uh, in the final minute with Thomas Doyle, uh, the Manchester City old boy, with a screamer to put uh, Sheffield United up. Um, They were down 3-1, and they win it. 3-2, just an amazing finish. The Blades looking looking like they're going to go up. Uh, They set up a battle with Manchester City. Uh, just a great little game there. Really enjoyed that. And then the other one, our other friends uh, in 
in um in Brighton, Grimsby and Harvey the Haddock go down to the mighty and powerful Brighton and Hove Albion, both teams scoring lots of goals, not um not Grimsby, but Hove and Albion scoring enough goals. First Undav, Ferguson twice, the best young striker that no one's ever heard of, 18 years old, built like a brick shit house, a machine. Sally Marsh and of course Matoma. So that front three again putting goals in. The Zerbi has his team flying. Granted, the story of Grimsby Town, it ends for them. They were the lowest division team. They clapped their fans off. So we set up a quarterfinal round of United playing Brighton and Hove and Albion along with City playing Sheffield United. Really fun stuff, really good stuff, really enjoyable stuff. And I just wanted to get the FA Cup out of the way because we have crazy news <laughs> in the Premier League. I'm going to get to the Conte stuff, but um, we do have to talk to her about our friend, Mr. Patrick Vieira. As I said, when is he going to get fired? In fact, he got fired on Friday. So after the episode came out, yeah, Steve Parrish, 7 a.m., phone call on the way to the office. Hey, Patrick, don't go in. You're fired. Uh, they do can't. They do sack Patrick Vieira after the loss, um, 1-0 to Brighton. Again, it's a derby. This is the equivalent of losing to Liverpool, like we've seen with United firing coaches after losing to Liverpool. This is normal. You lose to your rival. You don't show fight. Second half was really flat from Brighton. And then um, their new coach has got to take on Arsenal. And Arsenal get an easy, easy, easy win. No fight, really, from Crystal Palace. And um, we go into the Premier League. Arsenal getting the win. They are now eight points clear on a really, really good result for Arsenal. Uh, one of the things I had been talking about, if you remember, Arsenal had that run where the games were hard and sort of frantic, and now they've had two nice, easy games in a row where they can sort of take their foot off the gas, put their things back to normal, get themselves into neutral, get themselves where they need to be. And I'm storing up this Conte thing, uh, but I want to go through the scores. Uh, Southampton 3, Spurs 3, Aston Villa 3-0 over Bournemouth, Brentford 1-1 versus Leicester, a really fun little game. And Leeds get off the schneid, winning 2-4 against Wolves, and Chelsea with a really, really poor result against Everton 2-2. But we are now going to go, as I bounce around, uh, you've got the scores. We've got the FA Cup. We've got everything squared away. We know what's happening. We know what happened on the weekend. And now we have to go to Antonio Conte and Spurs. So what happened? Okay. Um, on the football side, this was a 3-3. Tottenham were up 3-1 in the 70th minute. Everything looked fine. They had been playing their normal Spursy way, a little bit defensive, a little bit Meh, Pedro Porro had a really nice goal just before halftime, and you thought Spurs would go into the break feeling good, uh, and um, they were feeling good. The game was leveled by Che Adams, no big deal. Then Harry Kane and Perisic both put goals up, so you'd think that Spurs were up 3-1 and cruising, and everything seemed fine. That's on the surface. I watched this game, and Spurs were not good. Uh, I thought the way I felt about it really was that Southampton were really growing into the game and they deserved everything they got. Uh, and they do level it from Walcott on 77. 
And then as Conte's trying to hold this game down, bringing in Saar to try and defend this game, bring in defenders, taking off Kulishevsky. He's really trying to hold this thing down. He brings in Emerson and Saar to try and see the game out with a 3-2 lead. Um, there's a penalty. In the box, Saar is clearing the ball. He lifts his head and just doesn't really pay attention to what's around him. Maitland-Niles kicks in front of him. And while it's a controversial penalty call, um, I don't think it was not a penalty because you could see the leg of Maitland-Niles get rattled by the kick in the leg. It was fast. It was quick. You couldn't really see it. It wasn't really like a hard thing. But the way that Maitland-Niles went down, the fact that you could see the kick did sort of give you a sense that there was contact. And anyway, so James Ward-Prowse steps in, does his baseball bat thing, and Spurs have a terrible draw. That's not the story. That's not the story. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Uh, Antonio Conte proceeds to have one of the all-time great um, press conferences. Because of the nature of the Premier League, the only spokesman for every team over the 30 years is the manager. There's not a PR person. There's not the director of football. There's not an owner. There's nothing. The only means of information coming out of games are small little interviews with players where they really give nothing. They're sort of like breathing heavy. They've, they're behind a screen and they say little, oh, we're going to take one game at a time. The gaffer said, blah, blah, blah. And the managers. So these moments within the Premier League history become bigger than the games themselves. There's such a starvation of information about games that when a press conference like Conte's comes out, it is massive. So what did Conte say? First of all, we have to know something about Antonio Conte. He is one of the most demonstrative managers in football. He feels every kick. He cheers every goal, runs up and down and hugs his whole staff. But when he loses, he is fucking miserable. And the majority of the time that Spurs lose, he comes up with these terrible sort of um, press conferences. But this was the last draw for him. He literally said, he's like, I have been holding back this whole time. He essentially goes on a rant that a fan would or an Arsenal fan would. He essentially verbalizes Spursiness. He says, Spurs over the 20 years have never won anything. It didn't matter who the manager was. What about that? He calls his players to the mat like, you guys, do you want to play under pressure? Do you Are you looking for it? Do you care about this badge? Uh, he's embarrassed. He says it's unacceptable more than once over and over again. And he essentially calls the ownership of Spurs to the mat. It's an amazing interview worth listening to. Now, I do want to be fair to him. English is not his first language. And so it's a little bit choppy. And I think sometimes the Premier League is a little bit unfair with, you know, this is a guy who's his second language. It's a little bit Italian accented. So that's to be, that's one thing to keep in mind. But the passion that he's feeling and the anger that he has is real. Um, I'm For me, I'm split on this. I think from a content perspective, as a person who discovers Spurs, it's fantastic. Uh, it's a story. It's amazing. Uh, I think he was honest as far as he can be about himself. 
He was honest about what he feels about the team. He was honest about what he feels about the owners. He was honest in his assessment of, hey, Spurs, what the fuck? But what he leaves out that I think is important is that he's in control of the situation. If there's any person who's not a player that actually controls what happens to this team, it's him. <laughs> he's the coach. He sets this team out. So as much as he is feeling some of the feelings that 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 he felt about the performance and the blowing of the lead and the whole thing and Daniel Levy and not transfers and all these things that have actually been going on at Spurs for 25 years, 30 years. I mean, listen, they have not won a trophy since 2008, and that was a League Cup. And before that, I think it was an FA Cup in 1981. And before that, they won the league in the 60s under Bill Nicholson. So this is a team that was on the up and up, but really has been floating for for decades and really hasn't won anything. It's really been, it's had moments and players that have delivered moments from Modric to Bale and now to Kane or or, or Berbatov or, or Robbie Keane or or Jermaine Jenis, these sort of players that, or, or, or Ledley King, just moments and players or, or Klinsman even early, you know, they've had moments moments of of brilliance and individual players of brilliance but not sustained club brilliance the famous line from from sir alex ferguson is they're losing one time to spurs and the half team halftime talk he walks in and he just says lads it's spurs and he walks out and that's the institutional damage or feel that Spurs has. And that's where Conte's rant is coming from. He's lamenting the institutional rot or weight of Spurs. Now, I want to talk about that, uh, that institutional part, because that's the part that I think is really fascinating. I've talked about it before. I talk about it a lot in our chat group about suffering. Uh, teams have to suffer. Teams have to go through things. Uh, teams carry the burden of their history with them for good and for bad, right? On the good side, you get someone like Real Madrid who can win the Champions League based on you must win the Champions League. Or someone like Liverpool who can grab a European night and lift themselves up, not this season, but in general. Or someone like City who's trying to push themselves through on the European stage, but doesn't have the institutional memory, the suffering, the moments to lean back on and push themselves forward. In the case of Spurs, their institutional health over time, over managers, over players, the stadium, all of it, it all is being carried forward into this feeling of Spursiness. It's a joke, but it's real. It's this idea that Spurs will blow it. Spurs won't win a trophy. Spurs are more interested in looking good, scoring pretty goals. But when it's time to get dirty and down, they can't do it. Um, and and that's what 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 has been happening for the last three managers from Pochettino. They went to Mourinho. They went to Nuno. They went to Conte. And those were supposed to be grit infusing managers. But they don't really encapsulate Spurs. Spurs is an attacking culture. Spurs is a flashy culture. Spurs is a London culture. Spurs is the Dave Clark Five culture. Originally, they were the team that had Glad all over as their song. 
And so this mix of, of this pragmatic must win at all costs with Spurs' culture doesn't really go. And, and, and that's what Conte's flexing on and, and hitting against. Whereas Pochettino embraced some of the cultural DNA of Spurs, which I think is what really people really loved, was that it was attacking and it was front foot and it was alive. But within that context, Pochettino defended and they were strong defensively. But then the Spursiness came in, in that Levy, of course, in the moment, I, and Mike can talk about this much better one day, in the moment, when Spurs can kick on 16-17, 17-18, just that, that season before they waited to the Champions League final against Liverpool, one of the greatest moments of the last 25 years for Spurs, they die by not reinforcing the squad with players. They never adequately replace Ericsson. They simply ask Harry Kane to do more. They never adequately replace Vertonghen and Aldevarald. They signed Davidson Sanchez. They know he's a failure. They know he ends up falling on his face, yet he still outlasted four managers. And he's still going to get tried again because he can run and he's there and they don't have other players to replace them. So Spurs are constantly in this state of, of three steps forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back, and now they're back where they were before. And that's what Conte's rant is about. He's channeled the entirety of Spurs culture, Spurs institutional weight, and verbalized it. So there's that, right? There's that side of it that I think is fascinating. The other side of it is, dude, you just asked to get fired. You cannot tell your boss that it's their fault for 20 years of failure. You cannot tell your players that it's 20 that it's their fault for them not winning games that they should have won. You're in control of this team. You're at training. You can see that these players can't defend, yet you continue to persist in defending. You can see that this team can't sit deep and hold a lead. Mourinho had the same problem. And yet you persist in playing as a team that tries to hold on to the ball sitting deep. You've got to get out. This team needs to be away from its goal. It's not good enough to do these things. Chiellini isn't walking through that door. Barzali isn't walking through that door. Gigi Buffon isn't walking through that door. Bonici isn't walking through that door. Right? Right? Daniela De Rossi is not walking through that door. This, this, there's not an Italian DNA in this team that Conte is flabbergasted by the fact that this team won't defend to the death. This is not an Italian team. This is not an institutionally Italian team that Conte is trying to play in that way. And it's blowing, it's making his head explode. He doesn't understand how they don't have this Catanaccio built into them like every Italian player does. And and these are these things that are institutional, right? Spurs is, is Bill Nicholson. Spurs is an attacking team. Spurs lives with that energy, with those players, with that history inside of it. It goes on and on season to season, building to building. Like they did a great job. They didn't, they stayed in White Hart Lane, literally building the building on top of it. So it doesn't lose its energy. And they built a very loud stadium. So that's what really went on with that rant. And uh, I find it fascinating. It's an amazing event that happened with Conte and the whole thing. And um, 
we should probably just get into some more of the games. But that's what I really wanted to talk about was just that where Conte went, what he did, how it felt, and what it means for a team like Spurs to go through something like that and just have it not work. And it's blowing his mind. Um, so let's go to, to some of the highlight games of the of the of the match week. Um I do want to touch a bit more on Arsenal and and touch on Bakari Saka. He might be the best right winger in the world right now. He's on double digit goals and assists. Martinelli, just front three, the Trossard signing, Shaka signing, just a level of effervescence and skill and power that Arsenal have that, you know, they just, they're there, right? Like, I'm a City fan. I want them to lose. I keep seeing games that I think might be their moment to drop. And it just doesn't happen because this team, Arsenal, has a way to play no matter what you do. You try and take away the middle, which is what um, Crystal Palace tried to do. They tried to put in, um, they tried to put in Milivojevic and um, and Tompkins and had Schlup marking uh, Trussard, uh, Partey, and sorry, they tried to mark Odegaard and Shaka out of the game. So what does Arsenal do? It starts attacking down the wings, and so you see Martinelli and Saka get all the goals, and Ben White does a great job. Uh, at fullback and if you try and mark out the wings they come through the center so they've got answers and different ways to play and different ways to break you down and they have force they play with force energy directness and they want to win when i look at this team and i think about who they are i very much think about 17 18 city when the centurions with sane and sterling and aguero sane and sterling are Martinelli and 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 Bakari Saka, these wingers that are super dynamic and in the roles of uh, Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva are Shaka and um, are Shaka and Odegaard and in the role of of Fernandinho is Thomas Partey. It's almost the same. It's almost the same, except you know the city version of this was a bit more older. Um, a bit more in different places in their career. But in this case, Arteta has this Arsenal team playing like early Pep City, but with all young players all playing at the same time. Um, and I don't know how Arteta is in terms of that alienating thing that Pep does. He's he's much, much less of a tinkerer. He hasn't had to. He has an all-young team. He doesn't have superstars that he's got to deal with. He doesn't have to do any of these things. Uh, so we see a really powerful performance and an easy performance from Arsenal. And listen, I said it a month ago when they were had an eight-point lead. If they blow this, they're fucking chokers. Uh, they yak it. Eight-point lead. They still have to play City twice. Oh, no. They still have to say play City. Um, they still have to play Liverpool. They still have 10 games. And... As the saying goes, it is real squeaky bum time for them. I do want to give one particular amazing shout out. So Saliba misses the game. Rob Holding comes in. God bless Rob Holding. Rob Holding is a player that um, came in from Barnsley. I want to say like he's 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 like a real uh, English league player that um, 
that our friend Mr. Uh, Mr. Wenger brought in Bolton. Sorry, Barnley, not 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 uh, <laughs> not not Barnsley, but Bolton, and he was balding, and now he has like a Tom Brady level mop of hair, and he had the nerve to wear a headband with his balding hair. It's incredible. I mean, listen, I'm a snob. I've got this amazing hair, but come on, Rob Holding. You can't be like trying to pull your plugs back and be like, yo, what's up? So Rob Holding, respect to you. You didn't have to do much, but uh, you did get yourself uh, some game time. So you may, maybe you'll get you'll earn your medal um, and whatever. So I do want to juxtapose, juxtapose this result for Arsenal with um, our friends at Chelsea, who are the opposite. They don't play with force. They don't play with energy. They don't play with any of these effervescence that we see from Arsenal. They seem to get a lead uh, and then they play afraid. They don't have a cohesive fight in them. And listen, all these players have been apart from each other for months and months and months. And we should be clear Arteta has been with this group for three years, but even in his early group, he won an FA Cup. He figured out a way to play that allowed them to uh, to kick on. So Chelsea, Jao Felix finally gets his goal. He still hit the post, but it went in this time on 52, and then Havertz converts a penalty. And at that point, it was 2-1, um, but Chelsea just made many, many negative changes that did not show that they wanted to win this game. Um, you know, they were doing great with Pulisic on, and Connor Gallagher comes in. He's not the right guy for this game. He's not a player that's going to control and try and go in behind. Pulisic, for all of the shit I give him, uh, I haven't done in a while, he is a direct and attacking player. He tries to make shit happen, and he did hit the post and took some good shots. Connor Gallagher is a kind of a harasser, a runner, not a passer, not a, you know, he gets in a box, but he needs to be on the end of things. And it just sort of triggered to Everton that there was something here. Uh, after the Connor Gallagher comes on, DeCorey gets the goal on a header from Tchaikovsky. Set pieces. This is Everton. They're going to win on set pieces. And they played with force and energy. They went to Stamford Bridge and took it to Chelsea in a way that you wouldn't expect. Like they know who they are. They play how they play. And uh, they got their just rewards in a goal from DeCore, who wants to score goals. Uh, they get the penalty kick. And then Ellis Sims comes on for Idrissa Ganagay. What is Everton saying? We're going for this game. Idrissa Ganagay is our holding midfielder. Fuck this. What does Chelsea do? They bring on Loftus Cheek. Listen, big guy who plays like he's five foot six, doesn't score goals, doesn't shoot is just a sort of mover around her. Takes off Felix, Fafana fine, and then in the end, Ellis on 89, he completely bullies Koulibaly, gets his first goal, uh, his first Premier League goal in his second Premier League appearance, and Everton are living the dream with this draw at Stamford Bridge. They haven't won there or gotten anything from Stamford Bridge for years. Uh, and this one was on Potter. It's still listless. It's still disconnected. He's still not getting angry. He needs to fucking light a fire under this team or he's going to get fired. Um, I was a huge, huge Potter believer, but two things are making me question it. One is what Deserby's doing with his team. 
<laughs> right? He's taken that Brighton team and just turned it to 11, where now they're scoring goals. Solly March goes four seasons without scoring goals. Now he has 11. And he's taken this Chelsea team and left it really where it already was. I think Tuchel probably would have done just the same, frankly. Maybe better, especially with all the players that were bought. And Chelsea just sort of take all that goodwill from the Leeds win and the Bruce Dortmund win and sort of stuff it in their pants against a hapless Everton. They're shitty. And, you know, they didn't come to try and win this game. They just came to do damage control. And Chelsea just didn't really provide much. I mean, it's just the same Chelsea. Even though they have 19 shots and six on target, bah, 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 all the stuff, it's still just not good enough. It still doesn't feel like it's a unit again. And when we go back to it, right? Talking about institutions, Chelsea's institutional DNA is defensive, is is defensive by nature, but hard, is tough, is Mourinho's personality. But Mourinho matched Chelsea's personality. This is a team that came of age under Italians. It came of age under Chopper Harris. It came of age as the London version of Leeds in the 70s. This institutional DNA is not attacking football. That's why Sarri never worked. That's why, uh, you know, uh, Vias Boas didn't work. Certain things don't work. They're not in the club DNA. Losing is unacceptable at Chelsea. Unacceptable. You lose, you get fired. Done. The fact that Graham Potter is still in the job has Chelsea fans losing their mind. They're not used to this. So their institutional feeling is that this isn't right. He should be fired. Are they right? No, but that's their expectation. It's inside the club. That's what I think about uh, poor old Graham Potter, whom I adore. I'm just I'm just worried for whether he's the right man for the job. Um, and we move on within a sort of shortened uh, Premier League schedule. Another game of interest, I think, especially for the for the bottom three, is um, Leeds versus Wolves. Leeds score four goals. They're up 3-0 um, on amazing goal. Amazing goals by Harrison. Nyonto, again, the, the creator of this. Luke Ayling doing his bad flip. He comes in on the back post completely unmarked, and he does his bad um, uh, Robbie Keane tumble fall over and then rasmus nelson a really nice goal is that his name i don't remember his name being that but that's okay um <laughs> and then rodrigo late but wolves were in this game they win the xg battle they could have easily easily drew this game but castro who scores an amazing wonder goal from about 35 yards out on a clearance by melee you know how i feel about melee he's not a good goalkeeper he he clears it then his players sort of lose it right after the goal kick and um, the clearance is cool. It's a headed clearance by Melia. And then like a 35, 40-yard goal drops into the coal bar, bar, bar by Johnny. But Johnny's on the move in 84, and he nearly breaks uh, Luke Ayling's leg. Um, and so the rush, the attack for Wolves does subside. It's 3-2 at that point, and Leeds hang on for the win. But it was shaky. Um, a big win for Javi Garcia. Uh, but there's still Leeds DNA is very Bielsismo. Uh, and Bielsa is a kind of manager, though, actually, who who creates DNA. And so they're sort of getting out. They're sort of 
pulling out of that at the moment uh, still. But uh, they're still playing hectic. They're still playing frantic. No Tyler Adams in this game, which made it difficult and made it still frantic. Uh, but Lopetegui and Wolves are probably fine. I don't think that they're a relegation battle, even though they're in that crazy zone and we'll go through it uh, in a minute. But they tend to complain. They're in this like referees are out to get us kind of style, which I think is bad for most teams. It's really not something that you really want to be sort of leaning on. Like you lost. Okay. Take it in the fucking face. Okay. Just stop. Uh, So a little bit different there, a little bit weird. Uh, a big, big news for Wolves, uh, a striker scored a goal. Mateus Cunha scores the second goal. First striker to score a goal for Wolves since like, you know, since the 14th century. Uh, Wolves have been having a really hard time scoring goals from their strikers. But that puts, you know, that puts Leeds in a really, really good spot. They are hanging on. They're where they need to be. We'll go to another friend in the relegation battle, Brentford and Leicester. Uh, this one is level. Jensen on a really nice set piece. Shocking. Uh, Brentford do a really nice set piece. Uh, they get their goal early, but then Harvey Barnes from James Madison, a setup, really nice goal. It's 1-1. You get the feeling that if Leicester had lost this game, they would have been in trouble, but they get a good away point. For Leicester, this is good. They played good defense you know, against a physical team like Brentford. You know, Leicester are a footballing side. They do get their point. They don't give up too much. The XG in this game is pretty low. So Leicester did a good job and can be happy with their point. Again, when James Madison is playing, they're fine. It's when he's not playing that they have a problem. And so you'd expect them to pick up a couple wins and get out of this relegation fight. Um, They're one of the only teams in the relegation fight who has not fired their manager along with uh, West Ham. Um, so we, we had a very short slate. I'm going to go on to Aston Villa, who do defeat Bournemouth 3-0. And Unai Emery's revolution is just going really, really well. Jacob Ramsey, Douglas Louise on a great goal, and then Emil Buendia ahead or late. They completely dominate uh, Bournemouth. Really good win for them. They're cruising, and I think that they're where they're supposed to be. Mid-table. This team was always supposed to be mid-table. That's what the money they spent on for the team was. And really the issue was Gerard wasn't a good manager. Um, he just didn't have a, a way of playing a tactical nous. Now it doesn't mean he won't be a good manager. It just means that he wasn't ready for this job at this time. Um, and Unai Emery has had years and years and years of experience. He's got four European trophies that he can point at. He's got an FA cup final that he took uh, Arsenal to. He's been in the champions league. He's been through the wars. He's a good manager. Um, we got a version of him at Arsenal that was kind of set up to fail. I mean, he was never really going to have a great shot coming in after Wenger, coming in after a culture that was a little bit broken, and he just didn't have command of the language for the spotlight. He's much better suited to a team like Villa. And you could see Unai Emery staying at Villa for many, many years if he wants to, if he's smart enough to see hey, this is really my speed. These are the kind of clubs I can be at that I can elevate a team. Like, again, and even managers have, even managers have institutional points where they should be. Like, Emery at Arsenal, not good. Emery at PSG, not good. Emery at Sevilla, perfect. Emery at Aston Villa, perfect. You know, these players, Moyes at at Manchester United, bad. Moyes at West Ham, fantastic right where he should be. Moyes at Everton, perfect. These institutional, these levels, these kinds of things that are 
you know, should he be there? Maybe Potter is not right for Chelsea. He may not have the demeanor or the cojones to be that person. You might need a little bit of madness, a little bit of crazy, a little bit of wild. It's one thing, you know, I guess the way I'd see it is some managers are supposed to be the CEO of a bank and some are supposed to be the CEO of Sears or Kmart, right? Same job, different pressure, right? One is big money, big mistakes, big errors. One is like, oh, we're an old brand and we kind of sell tires. I don't know. Maybe that's my analogy. Is it Sears? Are you Sears or are you uh, Goldman Sachs? I don't know. They're both pretty evil when you think about it. Um, so that's how I think about that. Um, and then I, I do want to give a little bit more to uh, City, even though I sort of kicked around the FA Cup. The Holland thing is just like, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. It's really hard to find um, any superlatives for a guy who, when he's going, starts to pick up momentum. So one of the things I've noticed when you watch Holland is he's kind of plotting and he makes his runs and everything's fine. But once he gets his goal, he plays better. And I think that's part of the reason why he has these these hat tricks. He's got six hat tricks in a season. Kungo, uh, um, Sergio Aguero had 12 hat tricks in 10 years. And, and now Erling Holland is on 41 goals in all competitions, about to break the Premier League era record of 44 goals set by Mo Salah two years ago. And um, 44 by he and... Um, Oh, God, Van Nistelrooy, both on 44. Uh, Van Nistelrooy, I think, is 2002, 2003. Um, but he's going to smash that. And he has a decent chance at 50, 50 goals, maybe. He's on a goal a game. Uh, he barely gets any touches. And when he does, he puts it in. He's consistently, for his career, and this is all good strikers, by the way, is a way, way, way plus on his expected goals to goals. So he's, I think, a plus seven on expected goals versus goals, which is normal. All good strikers are like this. Uh, that's why they're good strikers. A good example is Harry Kane's always plus, Hinman Son always plus. These guys, they score on less chances. They're just clinical. Uh, he's got all the finishes. He's always in the right place. Um, and Holland just, once he scores his goals, there's like a switch that goes off and he starts running around like a madman. He he gets a half a yard of space and his acceleration and movement is just unreal. Once he starts moving, I think the first goal, he just disappeared between two defenders. He did bursted through them and you just don't think he can get there. But like many, I think if it feels like it feels like when you're watching a, a sprinter in those Olympic races. When you're just like, he can't possibly catch that person from behind. Or like Usain Bolt is the perfect example. He always had this sort of slow out of the gates and then would just take off past people. And they, they feel like they're running at an inhuman speed, but they're all running super fast. And he just glides past them. That's how Holland is. He's so fast. He just disappears. And then he's got all the finishes. Uh, he had a couple of weeks there where he was shooting shots over the bar. He's not really good at static movement goals i don't know if there's a good way to put that but he's much better when he's moving and active and in the box but versus a sort of like pull back fire from a standing position he's got to work on those types of finishes that's what aguero was incredible at but his 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 moving shots his on the move shots 
are really good. It's his set shots that are his one weakness and headers. He's actually not that good at headers, even though he's six foot five. Anyway, Holland, incredible. I'm really excited about the um, the FA Cup semifinals. We're going to have United versus um, Brighton and Hove Albion. John and all my United friends, you better fucking be ready for that team. They're going to come get you. That's at Wembley. Brighton is not that much worse than United. This is a team that is as good as United. Don't, I'm saying it here first. This is no gimme. <laughs> there is every chance that Brighton will beat United. Every chance. Now, the other side of the bracket, Sheffield, I have a lot of respect for them. City just fucking laid the smackdown on the team that's 13 points ahead of them. So I'm not worried so much about Sheffield. It's not Chris Wilder's overlapping fullbacks. It's just a regular old good championship team with a lot of Premier League players. And as Vincent Company said in his interview after the game, they're the 22nd ranked team in England versus the second. Whereas, you know, Burnley were the 21st ranked team in England versus the second. And not, you know, Arsenal, City are barely the second most uh, best team. All our underlying numbers actually put us as the second best team in Europe. Um, so that's the FA Cup, and that's in a couple weeks. We're heading into the dreaded international break. Uh, some of our friends this week did not play. You'll notice there was no Liverpool. Um, Forest played on Friday. They played Newcastle. Um, they lost on a very stupid penalty <laughs> uh, by <laughs> by Dick. I, I want to make sure that I've got that right. That was Friday after the pod came out. Yeah, I'm just double, just triple checking. Yeah, Forrest on Friday lost 2-1. Uh, that was the Isak coming out party, but a really stupid penalty. Uh, a guy... I can't remember his name. I have to look, put his hand over his head on a cross, giving away a really hard fought draw that could have gone. That could have really gone. Um, uh, Nottingham Forest's way, but the arm over the head was just, you know, a clown, a clown move. I just want to get his name at Musa. Niakate puts the arm over the head. Blows the game for his team. And unfortunately, an amazing goal by Emmanuel Dennis gets cleaned out. And uh, Alexander Isak plays, scores two really good goals. He's a really good player. I think that Newcastle probably black back off the schneid after their League Cup kind of flirting. After that string of draws, no more Callum Wilson. They're going to play Isak the rest of the way. Uh, I could see them getting in the top four, especially with, um, with the way that uh, our friend at Spurs are sort of collapsing. They're not playing well at all, but let's, um, let's have a look at, at the premier league table because it's fucking bonkers. So the top half is steady. As you go, Arsenal eight points up on 69 with city, a game eight points behind, but a game in hand United on 50. So that's locked in with Tottenham right behind them. But both teams around Tottenham United and Newcastle have two games in hand on Tottenham's 28. So they're two weeks behind. So even if you sort of factor in, you know, best of the best, that's at least two points because both teams are probably averaging literally United and Newcastle averaging about two points a game. So you can figure they'll get two 
out of their next two to get four points out of their next two. I think that's reasonable. That would put uh, Newcastle on 51 and United on 54, where Arsenal, where that would drop uh, Tottenham into fifth. Um, then we have Liverpool also five points behind Newcastle with the mighty and powerful Brighton with a game in hand level on points with Liverpool. I'm not fucking around. Brighton is going to beat United. They're going to, they can still finish in the European places. They're that good, especially Evan Ferguson. Look him up, fall in love with him. Uh, Brentford get the draw. That sort of tents their chance at Europe. Uh, Fulham sliding a little bit behind in ninth behind Brentford. Uh, Mitrovic and Mitrovic is going to miss like six games after this red card he got in the FA Cup where they just, Fulham completely imploded, lose their minds entirely. So they're going to be without Mitrovic and probably slide down. Like I said, their underlying numbers, not great, Bob. Chelsea holding up that middle in 10th. They've been there for a few weeks now. They literally are the epitome of a mid-table side playing middling football with middling results. Uh, behind them, they've got to watch out. Aston Villa, level on points with Chelsea. I could see them kicking past Chelsea and, and Fulham and finishing in ninth the way Aston Villa probably should have. And then Pallet. Then, then we get into the fun zone. So on 11, on 38, is Chelsea and Everton and Aston Villa. Then from 12 down, there are four points separating seven teams. Three of those teams are to be relegated. I have now given up on predicting. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I have no idea. I do know a couple of things. Of all these teams down here, only three, only two haven't changed their managers. Nottingham Forest, three. Nottingham Forest, Leicester, and West Ham still have the same manager. Southampton has changed two managers already. <laughs> um and, you know, we saw the bumps from both of those teams. I think Everton are going to be fine. There's no way Dyche is letting that team go down. I still think Leicester are way, way, way too good. And then, like I said, data-wise, West Ham are too good. So that means between Leeds, Forest, Bournemouth, and Southampton, we've got to get three from that group. Um, I'm sorry, Christian, but Forests are starting to be in trouble. Uh, they are not... You know, they they their underlying numbers are not great. A lot of that came from early away defeats. But when I switch this thing to the XG table, uh, the XG table tells me it's Forest, Everton, and Bournemouth in a bottom three. The bottom four would be Palace, Forest, Everton, and Bournemouth. So, you know, we know about Bournemouth. I think from what I see from Southampton, I've said this a million times, their issue is Bazuno and goal scoring. They're on 17 with an XG of 27, which means they're not scoring. So, but this is typical, right? So teams at the bottom, what's the hardest thing to do in sports, in soccer, in the Premier League? Score goals. All these teams are all going to have a similar problem, which is they're creating more. They sh they're having a hard time scoring goals. So you're going to see this common thread of, They've created more than they've scored. None of these teams are scoring in line with what they've created, except for Bournemouth, but their defense is terrible. So Bournemouth have the worst defense in the league, but they've scored 25 on an XG of 23. But then Everton scored 22 on an XG of 30. Nottingham Forest scored 22 on an XG of 28. 
Palace is actually really poor. And this is the problem. They're going to bring in Roy Hodgson after firing Vieira. Remember I said, when are they going to fire Vieira? Well, they fucking did it. But Hodgson is a firefighter. The issue with Palace is they're not scoring. <laughs> they don't need to be better defensively. They're actually quite good defensively. Their issue is they can't score. Uh, and then we've got Wolves on 22 goals on 28 XG. So a lot of these teams, they have the same same problem. And the worst of the group is Southampton on 17 goals, four on 27 XG. They're going negative in both ways. 46 goals against on 38 XG. They actually have played better than they should have, but this is the nature of a young team. But I really like what I saw from them against Spurs. I thought Southampton were fantastic. And weirdly, I would pip them to stay up. I think the issue we have is like Forrest, I think it's going to be nine wins. So there's 10 games to go. Most of them are on six. All of them are on six. Yeah, except Wolves is on seven. Lesser is on seven. Each one of these teams has six wins. Whoever gets to nine, I think is going to be fine. So that's three more wins and then scrap the other points together. So nine wins is usually going to keep you safe because nine wins, nine times three is 27. Then you have to find a few more. 10 wins is really the gold standard. That's 30 points. And then you find the other eight points in your draws here and there. So whoever gets to nine wins is in business. So Palace is on six, Leeds is on six, Everton's on six, Forrest is on six, Leicester's on seven, but they lead the league in losses. Actually, no, they have 16. Uh, Southampton lead the league in losses on 17. But at the bottom, go for the fucking wins. Whoever gets the three wins first is going to be safe. I promise you. Get to nine. Those nine points are going to save your ass. All these teams on 24, nine will put them on 31, 32. It's going to come to the last day of the season. And I'm just going to go with the nerd numbers. The nerd numbers tell me it's probably going to be like some combination of Bournemouth, Southampton, and Forest. They're the worst teams, frankly. Uh, they have been all season. And, you know, that's just where we are. Um, but I could see West Ham going down. I could see any of them going down. I could see Far Palace going down. It's just been a very, very weird season for all these teams that are expected to score more goals, and they're not. That's really been the issue with Palace and West Ham. They should have way more goals, and they're just not clinical at all. Bowen, not finishing. Zaha, not finishing. Edison Edward, not finishing. Just disasters on their side. And then at the top... You know, Arsenal have to lose. If Arsenal are going to lose, City can't catch them. It's very simple, stupid kind of assessment. But City are really catching fire, catching form, catching Arsenal is going to be tough as fuck. Okay, I said a lot. Things got weird. The beginning was a little bit dodgy, but I fucking enjoyed this episode. And I hope everyone else did too. Please, please, please. We're going to say goodbye. I had something to say and now I don't. Oh, there we go. That was the Squeaky Bum Time podcast with Laurent Cortines. We are the football wing of the Chop Sports Network and presented exclu exclusively by the Premier Streaming Network. We record on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get episodes so you never miss it.